Welcome to today's CIT Tech for Business podcast. We are sitting down with Nate and Kyle to talk all about email security. Oh, and I almost forgot Tara as well, our second marketer here on the podcast. We are sitting down again, email security. This was an emailed in request for an episode. So thank you so much for throwing that topic out there. We're excited to get it covered today. We're gonna to start it off with an icebreaker and this will be right after Halloween. So we are asking today's panelists, what candy do you love? What candy do you hate? I will go first. I'm Kelsey, I'm part of the marketing team. And honestly, I have a lot of food intolerances, but candy that I love, any sort of chocolate, Love, love, love chocolate. There's a new oat milk chocolate that is to die for. Candy that I hate, probably like candy corn. Disgusting. What about you, Tara? Thanks, Kelsey. As um, she had mentioned, my name is Tara, also part of the marketing team. I despise black licorice. So do not put that in my, my candy pail. And um, I'm a big fan of just the good old Snickers bar for Halloween. But Nate, what about you? I need to come trick-or-treating with you guys because I normally don't eat any candy. So that's the worst, I guess. But the, the two best I'd say is I actually have a bag of uh, black licorice and candy corn at home. So, uh, <laughs> so you yeah, know where to I, send I, all I, yeah, I'm coming to hang out with you guys. That's hilarious. <laughs> what about you, Kyle? I, I am I'm Kyle, I'm the president and CEO. And uh, when I look at the candy, the one candy is not Halloween related, but it's the it's the candy hearts at uh, Valentine's Day. Those what were the the Neko hearts? Those uh, I buy those by I those I pick up and hang on for a couple months after Valentine's Day. Those are my those are my favorite. Um, anything with coconut, so almond joy. Mounts, I, I don't like coconut in my candy i'm not a coconut fan so those ones i've weighed out black but the black licorice is a close second though and uh, not a not a fan either nope but yeah good to know that we'll stockpile candy hearts and then we'll give all of our candy that we don't like to nate i also love coconut and uh so yeah just send all <laughs> send all the junk to me when we get those all the joys and those things i'll uh, i'll set them aside for you man you can have i like I think the biggest thing is I like big, strong flavors. Uh, so, perfect. Interesting, interesting. But, you know, back to email security topic at hand. I'll lead us off with what is what is email security and why is it so important? Yeah. <laughs> Nate, you want to start that one? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so email security, it, it's not anything new. I let me, I'll preface it with saying I really hate email in general. I think it's such a um, old way of communicating. I understand why, right? It's asynchronous and everything. It allows you to go take vacation and come back a week later, right? But email security, it's it's one of those necessary evils, I, I, unfortunately, is number one, social engineering and phishing continues to remain at the top of uh, the methodologies used to uh, contribute to some type of attack, right? Uh, and the reason why is people are at the end of uh, that chain. People are susceptible to social engineering, all that kind of stuff. There's there's just basic psychology that you can exploit to make someone click on a link. Um, and then in addition to that is it is one of the lowest efforts to actually uh, abuse for a threat actor. So I can send out 
uh, go buy some mail relay or something and go blast out a million messages a week or a month or whatever it is, right? And if you take some of the statistics of, let's say, two, three, four percent success rate on someone clicking on that, that's a wildly successful campaign for very low effort. So, um, yeah, email security is just a necessary evil, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think it's very easy to deceive through that platform side of it. Uh, you know, it's it's always the I try to go like I'm the the real world, you know, physical equivalent of email. When you look at just physical mail, you know, anybody can write a return address on any envelope before you send it. You know, there's no third party validation of the return address of who the sender was. And the digital equivalent isn't much different. The, the spoofing on the technical term of who it comes from on how that gets exploited and presented and uh, you leverage as a um, to to bring in malicious payloads and other threat things out of it. It's been, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a threat for a number of years and it's obviously been, you know, morphed and changed as it goes on. And I know we'll de talk deeper as it goes through it, but, it, you know, it's not only just that the outside in on when you're receiving from outside, but it's the inside um, that we're, you know, a lot of the focus is going to in 2022 because most people and most providers now have, have pretty good filtering of, of what you traditionally called spam, you know, and those other sides where it was just junk and then they're doing a lot of filtering. We'll talk a little bit about more of the advanced tools and how you deal with more malicious payloads. But the internal stuff is where a lot of people aren't investing as much into, and that's where some more attention needs to be given to, to deal with current threats in 2022. Yeah, and, you know, just kind of riding off Kyle there, the so much focus has been giving on emails coming into the organization because you know organizations are constantly doing phishing training security training you know you name it they've invested all this money into their spam filters and then at the end of the day you still hear all these stories going i still get a lot of spam i still get a lot of uh, malicious stuff dropping into my mailbox why is my security solution just broken um you know and the reason is no, and we can get deeper into that. There's defense in depth is a core security product or concept. And when no tool is ever 100% guaranteed to stop all threats, threat actors are constantly evolving. They know what these tools are. They're trying to actively work to bypass them. Um, but then more importantly, like Kyle was mentioning about focusing on the internal, is you now also need to start taking a look at focusing on what's leaving the organization and helping protect that, right? So let's say email made it all the way through to the user's mailbox. There's an account compromise. One of the common attack methods of that is credential harvesting. So what they're going to do is they're going to go email everyone in your global address list and go blast an email out of your organization to try and have more people click on it. And it's just this big cyclical attack to gain as many credentials as possible so outbound security is really important too so yeah and I, I think on that internal side where we've seen that too is when people are moving um you know horizontally through the organization once they're able to do an account takeover of a device and get into the system side of it they may not have the keys to the kingdom that they're looking for and then they'll 
you know, on through their account, they'll start moving horizontally to get to the keys and who has the authority and leverage side of it and be viewed as a trusted side. So now your external spam filter is not, you know, it's not a spoof. It's not, you know, it's actually coming from that person and they're asking them to do things and it generally goes unchecked. Um, And and, and a lot of the external, again, filters are on the outside. So you have to have some more advanced tool sets in there to do that behavioral analysis and and, uh, unique filtering side of it. It's a different aspect of the training side of it to have have you know multiple checks on multiple signatures and other areas of authorization sides of it and just don't blindly go buy a bunch of home depot gift cards because you got an email from the ceo that said you need to send them to a customer um that's probably not right so next time you email me and go yeah you need to go to home depot i get to be like nope yeah, no. I can, I can, I can a hundred percent say I'm never going to say go buy a bunch of Home Depot gift cards and email them to this address because I'm, I'm busy in a meeting and I can't make it. Um, no. That's never going to happen. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> I'll give one real world example and then we can start jumping into some of the stuff that you can do to help start protecting your environments. But I don't know how many organizations have seen this, but one employee again clicks on the malicious email. Someone logs in. They blast out those emails saying, please click on this attachment, uh, whatever, whatever reasoning they have behind it. All of a sudden you have all these emails coming back saying, hey, I can't open it. Can you please send it again? And that was the whole attack was to gather that credential. There is nothing at the end of the rainbow there. And all of a sudden that's how, like Kyle was mentioning, you see not just one email compromise, that might have been the initial one, but oftentimes when we're doing these instant response, um, it, you'll see five, 10. I think the highest one that I've seen in a small organization was 35 people compromised all based off of one email. And it's because they trusted that one internal person who then blasted internally. And that's the whole privilege escalation and information escalation. So, um, Kyle, do you want to maybe start off with just some of the basic things that you can do, you know, completely for free and a lot of the, the the tools today to start limiting maybe some of that blast impact or blast radius for outbound emails? Hey, I'll, uh, I'll defer to you had a lot more of the direct actual product side on it, but, it, you know, we certainly use um, and leverage products from like Darktrace and different uh you know, Office 365 rule sets. There's a lot of different mm-hmm. rules and controls you can put in on a lot of the platforms you already have. Even if you're in Google Workspace or in 365, you can put a lot of controls in place. Even just the simple suggestions of putting on, you know, banners on site that this came from an external sender. And if it has an internal address, there's some immediate flags that get placed on those. Um, you know, there's, there's controls and rate limiting you can set to say you can't, send out only X amount is all that's allowed for for standard personnel and limit the amount of people who potentially would ever email that many. Um, and we generally advocate, um, and our marketing company does the same, to use an external source you know, for your large and customer email sends and don't use your internal platforms for those purposes because it, it allows you to have those proper controls in place so you don't have to deal with those exceptions. Um, but that'll help mitigate but you know, through 365 licensing as, as an example, I mean, as you get to their enterprise suites and the other sides of it, there, there's a lot of um, you know information protection rules and, and different areas you can put in there, prevent certain data from being 
able to be sent to external senders at all and in different areas. So there's quite simply a number of just simple things that I think have a pretty dramatic impact just to control some of that data loss prevention. Yeah, I think you hit a lot of the same ones. I was going to say rate limiting would be one of them. Uh, number one, Microsoft or some of these other tools, they're, they set the rates very high just because they have to adhere to the general population. For example, I don't send a ton of outbound emails. Mine could be dropped far more than someone like marketing or sales. Uh, so being a little dynamic with those. A lot of organizations will restrict the the file size that someone can send, right? You don't need to send full uh, executables, right? Maybe just a couple documents, uh, that kind of stuff. But I guess I'll quick shift gears a little bit, but well, this is probably one that's a little less um, common, uh, at least in people's perceptions of email security, would be what I'd consider brand reputation. So this is one where there's a reason why you never see emails that are malicious coming from Microsoft.com, Google.com, WellsFargo.com, whatever it is, right? It's never coming from their actual domain because they have uh, email security. There's a, a protocol called DMARC. That's a whole different podcast. I've done hour and a half trainings on that one. But essentially what it does is if a threat actor is attempting to impersonate you, prevent them from being delivered to whoever it's going to. Uh, I'll just throw out one example um, is we had a city that was local uh, to us. They had a threat actor that was emailing their residents with the domain of the actual city saying your water bill is due, please pay us. It wasn't actually coming from the city, but someone was impersonating them because they didn't have something like DMARC implemented. And so residents were then paying these fraudulent bills. The city caught on, caught wind of that, and there's a whole debacle about that. But um, you will start to see SPF, DKIM, DMARC coming up even on insurance uh, requirements and everything. So uh, if you're not working on it, Start working on it. If you're not familiar with it, stay tuned for a future podcast or just contact us. That's a large topic. I mean, we, we kind of generalize it all into like sender verification, you know, um, things you can do. There are there are technologies and solutions out there to yeah help limiting the, your actual domain being spooked. It uh, it doesn't mitigate them from misspelling your domain by one character or whatnot, but. Those are more flagged by a lot of the more advanced tools will detect those those types of domains because they tend to be very new in many cases. They're new domains, so they tend to get flagged by those indicators. And obviously they give they build a reputation pretty quick because they're generally sending from common threat actor locations often. So mm -hmm. a little more easier to detect those, of course. One quick yeah. follow-up question that might bring us a little bit on a tangent and let me know if this is a separate podcast, but right, if if I was a business and Tara and I have looked at different email providers, Constant Contact, MailChimp, we use the tool Marketo, um, spoilers. With any of that, how hard is it to set up for a business without going too deep into the weeds? Is it fairly easy to set up or is it something that you should really kind of rely on somebody like CIT to get set up? I would 
probably defer to the skill set of the internal employees on that one. I mean, there's some wildly smart people outside of CIT too. Um, you just need to make sure that you're aware of things like mail flow and how it works, where, you know, the, the different routing that's going out. Um, and then also, if you're dealing with different mailing services, be intimately aware with SPF, DKIM, and DMARC, because if you have DMARC implemented and you start changing tools, it will reject those messages. Um, again, whole nother topic, but just making sure you're very familiar with those concepts. That makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. It, again, it's all going to, I think, could be dependent on how well their current systems document, how much they know. Uh, of how well everything's working. I think in many cases, it needs to to you that uh, get engaged. There's, they're not even aware of how many <laughs> other sources, websites, for example, that are sending on, you know, with their domain name and a lot of, you know, they may be using a third party marketing group. They may, you know, like Marketo on their sides or Constant Contact and they were using, the domain. I mean, there's all kinds of things that people because it's not always in the IT department. You get the marketing in different departments maybe have done different implementations and different things. Sales orders, ERP systems maybe leveraging for electronic invoices. <laughs> you know, it's just, there's a lot of discovery that you usually just people haven't even thought about. And you don't, you find out as soon as you implement it, you find out how many things break. Um, that's the rough way to do it. But um, that, that's usually what takes the time is, is it depends on the size of the organization, how organized and how much due diligence has been done to document mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah. Uh, I know, yeah. boy, it seems like we're chugging through this outbound security real slow, <laughs> just because there's so many things to break down, <laughs> which I, I, I fully expect tons of questions coming off of all these different branches. Um, I guess the one last outbound email security thing that I have, and this one's really important, especially if you're in a regulated industry, is data loss prevention and encryption. Um, essentially, if someone is sending out, you know, health records or, you know, data such as their social security number, maybe birth dates, um, PII such as, you know, credit card info or um, addresses, whatever it is, telephone numbers that are identifiable, um, you can pick your, pick your detection that you're trying to focus on, but making sure that as that's leaving your organization, it actually is encrypted, so it can't be intercepted. And uh, there's a secure portal on the other side. Uh, there's a lot of these tools that'll automatically decrypt it if someone else is using the same product. Um, but one of the most common things that we see at organizations is every January, February, March, April, you see tax return after tax return after tax return with all the uh, social security numbers leaving the organization unencrypted. Um, it's terrible. So data loss, uh, inc mail encryption is super important there. So, And then I guess on the outbound security side, I'll just touch on it real brief. I'm not going to go into depth, but insider threats, can you identify if someone is actually uh, exfiltrating or stealing data? out of the network and potentially emailing their personal address. Some of the more advanced tools can automatically detect uh, who's emailing their personal addresses and then show you what content is actually being delivered to those. It doesn't need to have a pre-can saying, you know, Kyle, what's your personal email address? It'll just detect it. So really, really yeah. powerful stuff. 
Yeah, I think in those, you know, if we were to name drop some of those, then we can use like Darktrace. Um, Darktrace has their email into Gina as well as you have their network side detection. You got Sentinel um, Barracuda side with it. There's more of that, you know, falls in that behavioral analysis, much more deeper internal scanning side with it. But I think that moves you into that next tier of, of bringing in some artificial intelligence to help with, with, with what's normal, what's not and detect anomalies. So um, if Tara starts sending a lot of information to people she normally doesn't email or a lot of different external source or a large amount of data that traditionally would not be normal, that it can immediately take some action and notify somebody because the person just is not gonna be able to see and, and, and handle that. As well as for security reasons, you can't, you know, you really don't want somebody to be sniffing everybody's email all the time. So kind of allows that anonymous entity to, flag those but it's it's very real it's very common um and it's definitely leveraged because it it does go unchecked by most organizations i'm i'm gonna write off of that and take all this outbound discussions with some of the the machine learning and um, ai quick flip that around for the inbound side of things so you know we we internally use you know the dark trace and everything and it's a super powerful tool but the reason why we did that, we still have other spam filters. We have layer on layer and layer of spam filters here. But with the insights and the analytics for all of that outbound email, you can take that and flip it around to say, you know, when you're evaluating some of this inbound email security, where a traditional spam filter fails is it will come through, evaluate it, deliver it off to the recipient and then after it's delivered you can do nothing about that and then it also doesn't have any context to outbound security because it's only evaluating internal once you get to something like that the dark trace and those machine learning components it can take that and say i believe that this is anomalous because i don't see any internal people frequently corresponding with that external entity therefore this is likely more of a a junk mailer or something that's uh, just general spam or um, or likewise it can do things such as I normally see this person emailing your organization and there's been about three people internally that have emailed them but all of a sudden they emailed you back to 20 recipients that's anomalous that's not normal right I should raise the severity on this and then you can pull in other metrics like attachments links uh, are the links rare? So as it's taking those, it's not just saying, is this malicious? It's going, how often do I see that link? Um, so tons of metrics that go into that. It's the anomaly detection is a game changer for email security. I know I went deep yeah. in the weeds there, but. Yeah. No, but I, th I think it's like many of these things when you talk on these security tool sets, it always seems to be about you know, you have the awareness of of the next level to improve your or reduce your risk sides with it, and then it's the budgeting aspect of it to you know get the get the ideas of the cost because these more advanced tools come at a higher price. Um, they're very effective, but if you look in it in uh, you know with the analogy around insurance, it also covers you far better. You know, you you are taking you know a, a much more significant, effective reach and and reducing the risks 
our likelihood that you know these things would go undetected in your environment by deploying these more advanced tools. And ultimately, if you have one incident, it immediately pays for these solutions on a, on a multiple level. I mean, it's you know because it, it can be so far reaching if something you know really happens size with it. So why they're expensive, I think, in the larger scope of it, it's what could potentially happen in comparison. It's they're they're not equivalent, but you still need to understand the, the value proposition, plan for it and figure out, you know, how to make these affordable so you can integrate that into your into your technology planning. It's, it, we believe it's incredibly important. Yeah, the I'll just quick throw out a couple, you know, metrics or statistics to help. Um, if someone is trying to figure out, well, how on earth do I justify or how do I do a, some type of cost analysis on that? Um, so if you have an existing spam filter today, you can do uh, an analysis of how many emails have come in versus how many have been delivered to our end users. So right there, you can see what the immediate justification is. Now, some of these tools will also do free trials. So I'll I'll just throw out a number from CIT because um, I don't think it gives anything away, but we have a layer of high-end spam filtering before our dark trace, for example. Once it hits to the dark trace, then it takes it about another 4% of emails and actions them. And so what that tells me is then out of the thousands of emails that we receive every day, there's several hundred that might still make it through that traditional spam filter. Even with all the security settings pretty well tuned at this point, there's 4% that are still making it through. And then you can take that 4%, classify if it's malicious or not uh, for, you know, phishing or something like that, calculate what a average impact is for a single incident. And then you can take another statistic about average fish rates, you know, uh, that are your employees are failing after you're doing your security training. So hypothetically, just pick any number, right? If your organization's failing 4% on average, take 4% of those, go calculate what that is. It's astronomically high. It, it, it quickly justifies it if you're trying to help justify something like that to your executives. That's a deep dive uh, into uh, some of the email budgeting, but those are the things that you should be bringing to executives to justify some of these higher end tools. That totally makes sense. Before we kind of wrap this one up today, I wanted to ask you guys too about some of those base layer span filtering. Mm -hmm setting those up, what people's options are as they're looking into it, because yes, it's great to justify the next layer of tool, but I know you guys have briefly touched on those lower layers. What do those look like? How are those available? How would somebody make sure that those are actually doing what they're supposed to be doing? You want me to take it? I can, I can, I can start with it, Nate. Um, yeah, go ahead. You know, it, it uh, Start with the assessment. We do an assessment from our security teams. Typically, we approach in and have a third party, you know, validate your settings and validate that these are optimized and 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 set up best side with it. Um, many of them get set up years ago and they go unchecked and they don't get re re looked at. Many of the providers, especially when you're using you know cloud level systems, have added many features over the years and. Nate alluded to with like Microsoft's default settings. Usually they go to kind of the lowest, you know, uh, level side of it because they got to ensure kind of for the masses side with it. But there's a lot you can do to adjust those accordingly to really improve your overall 
uh, security side with it just by deploying some of the more advanced tools that do increase the likelihood of false positives. And that's usually why they're they're off. But, you know, you do, you know, you will, once you get through that the learning period and you communicate to users that you may, you know, have some valid emails get, get stuck in the filter initially, you know, they get trained and then you move on. But you, you greatly improved it by an exponential as percentages just by taking those efforts alone. And most people don't. Most people take the defaults, go with it, and then they leave themselves that extra exposure. So when Nate says 4% comes through, I think if you look at ones that haven't been tuned like ours has been tuned, you know, you're looking at that 10, 20% of them are coming through. So it's a much, much bigger number on an untuned filter. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess some of the things that I would say, if you're looking for the, the base layer of email filtering, just make sure it's doing some type of link analysis. So it takes those links, checks it against known compromises or known bad links, essentially, uh, or ones that are taking a look at some of the attachments coming in. You have attachment filtering. So is it an email with a macro? Not all macros are bad, but it can run it in a sandbox environment to make sure that nothing is executing beyond that macro. Um, and then there's some basic content filtering things that you can do, such as if your organization only speaks English, you can go in there and say, if it's coming in from Russian or Chinese or Greek or whatever, none of my employees can read it anyways, just block it. Uh, or the other geographic uh, restrictions, that's not perfect either. You'll see false positives as people are routing their mail around the world. You can make certain exceptions for that, but those are some of the basic things that you can apply. The most important of that is the links and the attachments. Yeah, I think adding the sandbox features, many of them have now where they'll open the attachments in the cloud and try to look at the payload on them is a nice mm -hmm. add as well. It does usually add some cost to have that little more advanced sandbox option, but that's that that does help quite a bit. Awesome. I know we've covered a lot from outbound to inbound, all of the different layers of filtering. Anything else that you want to leave listeners with of takeaways, or do you guys feel like you pretty much got it covered? Uh, at a high level, I think we covered a lot of it. I mean, as Nate alluded to, I think you can, you can get back on, go DKIM and talk about all the <laughs> uh, center verification things for about another hour, but um, there's definitely do deeper dives if, if the listeners want to go down into that that layer as well. Yeah, my only feedback other than, yes, we need another podcast about DMARC, but the, the only other things I'd say is we only scratch the surface on nearly everything here. So I know this is one of the questions about what can you do for email security? Please just say, great, now what? <laughs> right? You know, and just keep asking us questions on this because you can deep dive for ages on all these different topics. So, um, looking for anyone's feedback on that. No, definitely. As why we've done part two of a lot of different episodes because once you get into it, you realize that you can talk for a lot longer than 30 minutes. So, yes, by all means, anybody listening, if you're like, but that answered the question of, but what about that? or prompted other questions by all means, please email us, info at cid-net.com 
or you can head out to our website, cit-net.com backslash podcast. If you scroll down towards the bottom, there's a little form. You don't even have to give us more than your first name if you don't feel like it. You can just drop the topic right in there and we will take it and run with it. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Kyle. Thank you, Tara, so much for sitting down, chatting email security today. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks, everyone.